reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Our Father in heaven, we want to ask for your spirit right now to take your word and let it come alive in our hearts. Lord, we pray for your blessing. We pray that you would lead us to a place of great faith in what you will do and great joy in what you have done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2009, Pixar produced perhaps the greatest animated film ever made. In the first eight minutes, you meet two characters named Carl and Ellie, who become childhood sweethearts. You watch them grow up. You watch them marry. You watch them move into their first home. And you see them dream of having a baby. And you see them paint the nursery and set up a crib. And then in just a split second shot, you see them in a doctor's office where a doctor gives them the news that they won't be able to have children. And Ellie, who has been full of joy, sits in a chair in the front yard with her face blank until Carl comes and reminds her of their old daydreams, the things they used to dream of as kids together. And so they start to save money and they have a jar that they put coins in and they save for their dream of going to Paradise Falls in South America, their great adventure. But as they save, life happens, and you see again and again, they smash the glass jar that their savings are in as they fix a tire or repair the house, and you watch as they grow older and older and older. And then one day, Carl realizes that they are of an age where they will almost certainly not do what they have dreamed all their lives of doing. And so he goes and buys plane tickets so that they can go make this trip. And as he plans to give them to Ellie, Ellie falls down. And Ellie dies. And it leaves him alone, a grumpy old man 
with a bunch of dreams that never happen. Pixar does all of that in the first eight minutes of a kid's movie. And the joy of all of their hope is so sweet. And their loss is so deep. You can't help but cry when you watch it. There's something so universal about their experience that it speaks deeply into each of our hearts. Sometimes, when we look at the scriptures, you find the exact opposite. It's easy to read it with emotional detachment. And you might scratch your head and wonder what it means. Or you may know what it means and find that your heart is not engaged at all. I want to suggest to you, if you have never wept as you read the pages of Scripture, that something is missing in your faith. That there is something deeply true about the things that we find within the scriptures that ought to engage our hearts, not only with grief and sorrow, but also with incredible hope. This morning we're continuing our series through the book of Luke, and we're going to see two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, two old people who have never been able to have kids. You can imagine that their dreams were somewhat crushed. And I want you to imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth as your neighbors today, as though you lived right next door to them. And if they lived today in our time, you can imagine that they would have blue balloons down at the end of their driveway, celebrating the birth of a little boy to two people who never thought that they would have a child. It is a scene full of joy and wonder and fear. These are emotions that are named in the text. And my hope is this morning that you will feel some of these emotions as we look at the scriptures today. And I want to invite you to look at it with me. So if you have a Bible this morning, please open to the book of Luke chapter 1. And if you didn't bring one, find it on your phone or there are several Bibles throughout the sanctuary here under the seats. Grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 1. And let's read together verses 57 through 66. And you find the people wondering at what God is doing. Verse 57 starts this way. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth... To give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. 
Here in our text today, you find God is already fulfilling the word that he has spoken in the book of Luke, just at the beginning of the chapter. An angel comes and appears to Zechariah, gives him specific instructions, says that he will have a child, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, today we read, are obeying the Lord's command, and people marvel at what God is doing. You can imagine Zechariah may have told people about his vision. In fact, he almost certainly did. That God had told them that he was going to have a baby boy that prepared the way for the Messiah. And you can imagine, initially people would have looked at him a little bit funny. And then as Elizabeth clearly is going to have a baby, they might have said, I, I, I don't know if everything he said is true, but I can't deny that. That obviously this couple that is beyond the age of having children is now about to have a baby. And so maybe God is doing something. Maybe after so long, the things that Zechariah has seen and said are true and are real. If you remember from two weeks ago, Luke is saying that God is at work. He has worked through Jesus and he is working in the church and I believe he is working today. And Luke begins this story by describing that angel that breaks silence of 400 years to announce to Elizabeth and Zechariah, this couple that had no hope of having children, that they would have a baby boy. And the angel says this baby is going to be full of the Holy Spirit from birth. That baby would be a prophet who would prepare people for the coming Savior. And if you remember that message from two weeks ago, Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. He says, I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You, you can imagine he's a little bit gracious. Maybe his wife was younger than him, but he doesn't call her an old lady. He says, I am an old man and my wife is not young. You can imagine the undeniable evidence that God was at work that completely changed Zechariah's perspective. And today, in the passage that we've just read, you see them believing what God has said. The only evidence that they have that they cannot dispute is that they are having a baby. Everything else the angel told him is still in the future. But based on what they've seen God already do, they are trusting that everything the angel told them was true. And so they obey. They name the child John as the angel instructed them. And you can imagine, if you were in their shoes, I think you would also believe at this point too. We know that they were past the age of having children. So at the very youngest, they were in their 50s. And they very well may have been much older. Zachariah described himself as an old man and his wife being advanced in years. So you can imagine what the neighbors thought. Imagine as they saw Elizabeth carrying a baby. The, the text says earlier in the chapter she was praising God, that she was thanking God for showing her mercy. And as they both recognize what God has done for them, they obey and they name the child John as the angel had told them to do. And as Zechariah obeys, if you remember from two weeks ago, because of his disobedience, God removed his ability to speak. But now as he obeys and they name the child John, he's suddenly able to speak again. 
And this is another thing that the neighbors would have been wondering about. This man probably spoke a lot. He was a priest. He served in the temple. And suddenly, as he was serving in the temple, he comes out and he's no longer able to speak at all. And they assume that he's had a vision, but now, after nine months of silence, Zechariah bursts out praising God. And the effect that this joy and this wonder has on all of the people is it says, fear came upon all their neighbors. And I think that's fascinating, because why fear? You would assume that there would be a celebration. You would assume that there would be a party. And it describes how people are rejoicing with them. But the text says that fear came upon all their neighbors. And I believe this is why. They get the sense that God is close. That God is about to do something. And you can tell that because the end of verse 66 clearly says, The hand of the Lord was with this child. And all throughout the scriptures, when God becomes close, fear is a very natural response. Have you ever thought that, that you were alone? And maybe it's something innocent, like, you know, you're something. And, and as you're about to indulge in this, you realize someone else is, is with you in the room. And you might be sort of embarrassed. The presence of another person puts a different light on what you are doing. In Israel, God had been silent for 400 years. Even if you were faithful in knowing what the word of God said, most people would have begun to believe nothing will happen in my lifetime because nothing has happened for 400 years. And so after 400 years of just thinking that, you know, maybe, maybe it will happen, but almost certainly not. They have the sudden conscious presence of God as evidenced with this miracle baby. And I believe as they see a miracle that they cannot deny, and they see what it's done in the life of Elizabeth and in the life of Zechariah, they get the sense of God's presence. And the scripture says they're afraid, they're fearful. Now, I don't believe this is an unhealthy kind of fear. This is the fear that leads you to examine your life, that leads you to say, am I ready to be in the presence of God? This is not, I'm in trouble. This is, I need to be ready for what God is doing. And that's the exact ministry that baby John is going to have. And my prayer this morning is that the experiences that you and I have would encourage other people to seek the Lord and that you and I would do this for each other. As you tell me what God has done in your life, I am moved to get right with the Lord. And as I tell you what God has done in my life, you are moved to get right with the Lord. And we all together expect that God is doing great things together. Now, if that perplexes you, It perplexed the people that were living next to Zechariah and Elizabeth as well. They have a sense that God is doing something, but they don't fully understand what. And so the words that Zechariah speaks in praise to God, I believe, begin to give a hint at what is about to happen. 
and you read in verses 67 to 79 how Zechariah prophesies. So the people are perplexed, and now a priest prophesies and speaks into their confusion. And we're going to take this in two parts. First, let's look at verses 67 through 75 together. Verse 67 says this, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now before I talk specifically about what he said, notice verse 67 describes how Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. Luke as a writer in the New Testament, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, again and again and again, shows the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through people. And so people like Zechariah, who before this, he never would have said, I'm a prophet, finds himself speaking the words of God and declaring authoritatively what God is going to do. But first what he does is he praises the Lord and he blesses God in a sense for what God has said he will do before God actually does it. So first, notice one of the things that that should stand out is that their hope is not actually in the baby that they just had. You would expect a proud father who never expected to be a father would write a song praising God for his generosity and giving him and his wife a baby. And at the end of this song, he does speak directly to that baby, but their hope is not in the child that they have just had. This seems almost totally disconnected. We almost don't know what to do with this because this is a baby shower. They are having a baby and celebrating the baby. And Zechariah is praising God for national salvation. He's praising God for a deliverer that he knows is not the baby that he has just had. Zechariah's focus is on what God has promised. His vision is way bigger than him and Elizabeth and baby John. His hope is that God will keep his promises. And this morning, to you and to me, I want each of us to remember That our hope is not in the things that concern our daily lives. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus is returning. And that one day, Democrats and Republicans are not going to fight anymore. Can you imagine that? The book of Isaiah says, says that a little child will be able to stand next to a lion. And I almost find that more believable than national unity. The hope that we have is that good things are coming in Christ, that he is strong, that he is wise, that he is kind. 
And Zechariah remembers the promises that God has given his people through the Old Testament prophets. And praise pours out of his heart for the freedom that comes through the Messiah. Zechariah is praising God for a future king. That's what he means when he thanks God for raising up a horn of salvation from the house of his servant David. David is the king. And someone is going to sit on David's throne and rule. This king is the king that Isaiah was prophesying about that we read from Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born. Zechariah believes that God is keeping his promises. And notice the whole thing that matters out of all of the promises. It's not that just a child is born. It's not that a kingdom is established. Why is it that he wants freedom? What is it that he longs for? What is it that you and I should long for? The goal of everything he says is described in verse 74. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might go ahead and enjoy life. No, that's not what he says. It's not about him, and it's not about me, and it's not about you. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That our lives are changed and transformed so that we love being in the presence of God, and we give everything we are to him constantly, all of our days. We can serve God in holiness and righteousness. If you are impure this morning, God can make you pure. If you are not a righteous person, God can make you righteous. And the hope is not that God takes people who are already pretty good and says, you're in and you're out. The hope is that God can take people like me and people like you who are not good and change us and bless us so that we can enjoy God's presence and serve him All of our days. You might remember, and I hope that you do, we just went through the whole book of Exodus. Do you remember how how Exodus shows that God rescued his people from slavery? He gives them the law, so he teaches them how to live. And then he builds the, the tabernacle where they worship. So he leads people from slavery to service, to worship. The salvation comes first, and that's our hope in Christ Jesus. And the service is the reason that you and I are saved. God has always worked that people. And for Zechariah, he would have remembered God's deliverance from Exodus. He would have remembered how God rescued his people. And he would have remembered the joy of being in God's presence. In fact, for him, it would have been very tangible because he had just been serving in the temple, offering incense as people are praying that God would do again what he'd done in the past. And so for us, we need to recognize that their goal ought to be our goal, coming into the presence of God with real joy. And scripture teaches that we need the same sort of deliverance. The Bible teaches that you and I are slaves to sin and that we need Jesus to set us free by his blood on the cross. Only the blood of Jesus can set you free from the penalty and power of sin. And you might think that Luke is not talking about sin because up at this point we've been talking about a throne, we've been talking about a kingdom, but he is. Notice with me the ministry 
of this child. So Zechariah has been talking to all the people around him who are baffled and confused. And he's saying, God is being faithful to his promises. He is about to deliver us. And notice how he describes that deliverance through the ministry of his baby boy. Look with me at verses 76 to 79. He turns and he speaks to this infant. And he says, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah is saying that there's something bigger than a king that simply grants protection and freedom. He's saying that because of God's tender mercy, the sins of these people can be forgiven. He says that his child will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember the angel speaks to Mary. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. And as we look at these two things side by side and think about what God is doing in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the baby that they're having, and then you look and see what God is doing in the life of Mary and Joseph and the baby that they're having, we are intended to see how much greater Jesus is. That Jesus is not just a prophet, he is actually the son of the Most High God. And here, we find the prophet of the Most High. Pause and think for just a second. Why are prophets necessary? What is a prophet? He's someone who speaks directly for God. God gives him words to say, and the words that the prophet speaks are the words of God. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, they'll say, hear the word of the Lord, or thus says the Lord. John has a ministry to speak for the Most High God. Why is that necessary? Why don't you and I simply speak directly to God? Why don't we know automatically what God says and what God thinks? Well, the Bible, again, teaches that our hearts are desperately wicked. We are self-deceived. We, we often are led astray. So a prophet comes and says, this is what God says. Because you and I very often are not listening And do not remember what God has already said. And so a prophet comes and speaks and says, this is what God says. Even for the people of Israel, they needed that again and again. Even though they'd had so many prophets speak to them and should have known the word of the Lord. When the Messiah is about to come, God sends a prophet to lead in repentance. So that people are prepared for the ministry of Jesus. We need prophets because we are separated from God. And this prophet goes, and his message is that God is a merciful God who forgives repentant sinners. So that when the Messiah comes, people are ready to listen 
and ready to hear. One of the questions we ought to ask ourselves and that the Bible encourages us to ask is how do you know if a prophet genuinely speaks for God? This is not a new or unique question. All the way back in Deuteronomy, Moses told the children of Israel, if someone comes to you and says, God has given me a message, how do you know if it's true? How do you know if it's not true? Deuteronomy 18, 21, 22 says very clearly, you listen to what a person says, And you see if it actually comes to pass. If it doesn't, you don't pay any attention to someone who claims to be a prophet. What we're going to see in the ministry of John the Baptist, John the Baptist points very clearly to the ministry of Jesus. He says, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And so when you think about the ministry of John the Baptist... You know he was a genuine prophet who spoke for God because the thing that he said would happen, happened. And it gave validity to everything he said. His ministry validates the ministry of Christ. And I want to take that for a second. You remember, Luke is writing this book because he wants you and he wants me to know what God has done in the past. He says he wants us to have certainty about what God has done in the past. This matters enormously for our faith. And as he writes about John, part of the reason he's writing about John is he wants you and I to know How we know that Jesus is the Messiah. How do we know? Because Jesus never could have arranged this before he was born. John's birth and John's life happen by the providence of God. It's prophesied in the Old Testament that John would go before the Lord preparing the way for the Messiah. And Luke is telling us exactly every miracle and how it happened so that we would have great confidence and certainty in who Jesus is. What is John's prophetic word? He is going to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John doesn't even fully understand what Jesus is going to do in his life yet. And I I can't wait. When we get to chapter 7 in the book of Luke... We're going to see John wrestling with the ministry of Jesus. But here's what John knows right away, what even Zechariah knows. God is merciful and will forgive sins. His ministry is a ministry calling people to repent. He is confident the Messiah is coming and he wants people to be ready for the Messiah. So he is preaching that salvation comes through the forgiveness of sins. And here's how he talks about it. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, we can have this salvation through the forgiveness of our sins. The tender mercy of our God is what the sunrise does when it visits us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, I I use Psalm 23 in a lot of funerals. It's a very comforting psalm. And and everybody may remember the, the, the famous verse that talks about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We often think about that in the context of a funeral. This prophecy is saying we don't only live in the shadow of death when we're mourning the loss of a loved one. We live in the shadow of death constantly 
because we don't live in the presence of God. Our lives are lived in darkness away from his presence. And we often chase things that have nothing to do with God that leave us empty and broken and hopeless. And if you live in darkness, the message that this is saying, it's saying that the light is coming, that the sun is rising, that Jesus is on his way. And to be ready for that day. Now we as Christians look back on all of this and we know what Jesus did for us. We know that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, that he died in our place for us. And so in one sense, so much of this has already happened. But we also look forward to the second coming of Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning to be ready for that second coming. God is still a merciful God. And if you are not one of his children, you need to trust in Jesus Christ and be baptized to demonstrate your faith in what he has done for you. If you are his child, let me urge you to be ready for the second coming of Christ. To live a life seeking God's fellowship, resting in God's great mercy. Let me encourage you that Jesus is coming again. Verse 80 is the last verse of our text this morning. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And this last little verse, it might seem totally irrelevant, but remember, Luke is writing this as history. This is not an inspirational story, as some of the great stories are. Truth matters far more. And Luke is saying, this is true. This is historical. Why does it matter? Because Luke wants you to know for certain that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord of the church. If Jesus were just a man, he could never have orchestrated the events before his birth. He couldn't have prepared John for his unique ministry through angelic visions. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? Because the scriptures show so clearly That he's more than just a good teacher. And I want to urge you this morning to think about what God did here. To marvel at it, to be amazed at it. But to know that you need to be ready for the future. And I want to encourage you to be ready this morning and today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Lord, I ask that you would lift our hearts so that our hope would be in you. I pray that you would reveal the sins that keep us in bondage, that keep us separated from you. And I ask that you would give us the tremendous hope and peace that we can be forgiven through Christ and that we can live with you in fellowship, yearning for the day that we see you face to face. I ask that you would bless us with this hope and this confidence now as we think about your word. And I pray that you would give us peace. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.